So I live uh, in London. I've been down here for about five years. Um, I had a big stint in Stockholm before that, but um, fundamentally my career brought me to London in the end. Um, but yeah, as I said, my Isle of Man roots are always strong and I you know, still have family back there and friends and godchildren and things like that. So I try and come back as often as I can. And before we talk about your wild and wonderful adventures, um, just tell us a little bit about what, what your day job is then. What do you do over there? Because that in itself is quite exciting. Um, I mean, it can be exciting. It can also be um, not exciting. So it all balances out. But uh, I am an event manager, so I work uh, in event management. And it varies um, quite a lot between kind of elements of production, you know, sourcing everything that you need to pull an, uh, an event together, um, all of the bits and pieces that you need, uh, be it props or stage set or um, you know, content, be it stuff that's going to be on screen or stuff that's going to be handed out as giveaways and things like that. Um, I do quite a lot of artist liaison as well, which is probably a highlight of my job. Um, I kind of get to look after people who I suppose are in uh, the public eye. Um, but so far, I haven't had any um, people that are too much hard work or have had any tantrums. So it's been relatively easy so far. Go on, drop a couple of names for us. Oh, um, Serena Williams, Ian McKellen, Emma Thompson, uh, Andy Murray, Anthony Joshua, people like that. Wow. But everyone's being very well behaved. It's actually, ironically, usually their management that are a lot more difficult because um, I think they get a bit precious. But usually the actual um, high profile people themselves are, are usually quite willing to just be done. Uh, just to do what they've been told. Do what you're told, <laughs> Sarian. <Sir Ian. laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly. that's the sort of exciting nature of what you do by day. Uh, but yeah. uh, recently, well, in fact, for a little while now, you've been involved in some very interesting organisations that take you very far away from glitz and glamour. And actually, earlier this year, obviously, I, I follow you on Instagram and on social media, and I've been very conscious of, in particular a trip you made recently to Uganda. So tell us a little little bit about how you ended up in Uganda. So I uh, have been playing netball all my life. It's pretty much the only form of exercise I do. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a goal shooter, so I only really move when I have to. Um, but it's always been, you know, my favourite sport. Um, and a couple of years ago, I ended up going to Mozambique on the east coast of Africa um, just for a jolly uh, with some girlfriends and kind of fell in love with that kind of culture. Um, and then an opportunity arose to kind of merge those two loves together. Um, so a charity called the Netball Development Trust, who predominantly work in Central and Eastern Africa, but have also in the past worked in Pakistan and India and countries like that. And yes, the opportunity just came up to go and teach netball out in um, Eastern Africa. Um, Uganda and Kenya was top of their list. Um, and I ended up being sent out to Uganda for just under a month. Yes, it was a netball charity. Yes, it was a netball trip. But fundamentally, um, the kind of values we were trying to instill in the children that we met were, you know, a lot of the values that come with learning any kind of sport, you know, teamwork, leadership, uh, respect for yourself, respect for others, um, and just working as a team, really. And, and all of those important things that go with, like you say, because, as you said, it's not just about netball. It is about much more than that. So you went out there, obviously, not necessarily knowing exactly what you were going to experience and what you were going to see. Uh, just tell us tell us a little bit about what it was like when you first got there. 
So there was 12 of us, 12 volunteers, um, and we arrived into Entebbe International Airport at uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning. Half of the group were going to pop over the border to Kenya for the first week, and half of us were staying in Uganda. Um, we then packed into a Matatu, which is an extremely small minibus, uh, and drove for about eight hours uh, west to a very green um, and beautiful small town called Fort Portal, uh, where we spent the first week. And, you know, it actually was not as much of a culture shock as I expected. Um, you know, having things stripped from you down to your basics is actually um, not that difficult. You know, we ended up with very rudimentary uh, accommodation, you know, going to the bathroom holes for a month, eating the same food as they did. Um, and actually, it was probably coming back to London that was a much bigger culture shock, ironically. <laughs> In what way? You know, when you get things taken off you... Um, you actually realise how much excess we have. I had somewhere to sleep in Uganda. I had food in my belly. I was able to go to the bathroom whenever I wanted to. I had friends around me. Um, and coming back to London, very difficult to explain, but you end up with resenting, um, a feeling of resentment to all of the excess that you have because you realise that people are living um, much simpler lives in different parts of the world. And, and you know, this... Interesting definition, I think, from um, from the West especially, is that, you know, richness equals happiness and poorness equals sadness. Um, and most of the people that we came across out there were, I think, happier than many of, we, many of us are. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking, oh, I haven't got the latest phone or I really want that new pair of trainers. And the people that we came across have none of that. You know, they celebrate every single day because they know they're living on a day-to-day -day basis when it comes to finances and health. And, you know, there's so much life and music. And, you know, I, I would probably say they are much richer than we are. So how did they react to you lot then when you turned up? So we, the charity that I was with, the Netball Development Trust, have been out to Uganda, I think, eight or nine times before. So, you know, they knew that we were coming. They were extremely welcoming. I think, you know, as I've touched on before, the fact that we were living as near as them on the same level as, as they were for the time that we were out there, I think, was probably a reason why um, we were given a certain level of respect. Um, I think if we had been going into villages and teaching and then, you know, pulling back out to the Hilton, I think it would have been inappropriate, to be honest. And I think probably would have made us feel quite uncomfortable as well. So, you know, we arrived, we got stuck in, you know, didn't wear makeup for a month, tied, a, my, tied my hair and a ball on the top of my head um, and just kind of cracked on. And I think that that was a really valuable um, approach. I think I think that was that was why they were really happy with us when we got there. And there is that, that notion, isn't there, that sort of going around at the minute that there are some people from this side of the world who maybe just go out to places like Uganda or Pakistan or Kenya or whatever and sort of almost do it in, in a, a, a maybe slightly shallow way and a maybe slight sort of uh, temporary relief way. Whereas actually what is happening with the Netball Development Trust is it's something that is actually creating a real sort of legacy of support and assistance, isn't it? Just tell us in what ways it's doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of my uh, quite valid concerns before I went out was that I'm very conscious I didn't want to be yet another white Westerner going out, you know, taking some photographs with children in Africa and then coming back and saying, yes, I've done my bit. Um, I think what reassured me that, that that wouldn't be the case was the fact that NDT is very big on legacy. And I, I don't know if any of the listeners remember, but there was a, an Oxfam ad advertisement maybe 
oh gosh, 90s or 80s even, which had this analogy of, you know, give a man a fish, he can feed himself for the day. Give a man a net and he can feed his family for a lifetime. You know, MDT took out hundreds of pieces of equipment, left all of that behind with the children and the schools. Um, so they obviously have all the equipment that they need. Um, but also we had a, a level of train the trainer as well. So not only were we teaching the children netball, we were teaching the coaches netball and the teachers. So everything is kind of set up. And I think, you know, people are people are proud and they, they like to be able to be self-sufficient. I'm very satisfied to say that we've given you all the stuff, we've taught you what you need to do, and now we're going to leave and you guys can carry this on without us. I think that's it's actually quite satisfying that we, we don't need to go back and keep holding their hands because now they've got everything they need to, to keep going with the, the framework that we've set up. And what sort of difference did you see that this that them playing netball was actually really making to them? I mean, immediate. It's it's incredible. I mean, these are children that are in classrooms of um, maybe 80 to 85 people. Classrooms are, you know, the same size as ours, if not smaller. Um, they're all kind of sitting in rows, all facing one direction. And it's a very kind of rote learning style. You know, it's repeat after me, um, quite one way. You know, the children are just kind of fed this information that, and that's how they learn. And I think what is probably a lot less than our teaching styles in the UK is that I think there is less two-way conversation, room for questions. Um, they don't tend to kind of do teamwork or anything like that. So you know, putting them into a group, kind of, I want to do this, I want to do this, quite quickly reinforcing, you know, we're going to take turns. Who do we think would be a good captain? And then also respecting other teams as well. You know, even if, even if that team lost, we would always reinforce that you go and shake hands with the other team because it's really good to respect them. You know, they've done a good job. And all of these kind of, um, you know, like I've touched on life skills um, came out ridiculously quickly. I mean, that was incredible. And it, it was very hard to not be proud pretty much from the first moment we, we started working. And play in itself is so important, isn't it? Because it's got sort of it's got so many benefits to, to us as human beings, and it's good to sort of nurture that as well. But one of the things I love about uh, what you, what you guys do is you encourage mixed gender netball as well. Tell us a little bit about the ethos behind that. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, netball is a, a sport that is not in the Olympics. It is a sport that is predominantly at international level, only played by women. But when you're teaching it to children of this level, you know, it is absolutely essential that the boys learn these skills as well. You know, we didn't have any kind of gender preferences on teams. You know, the teams would be made up of girls and boys. And, you know, that was that was very new as well. When we started a session, we would say, OK, everybody get in a big circle. We want to have girl, boy, girl, boy. And, you know, automatically all the boys would huddle together and all the girls would huddle together and they, you know, weren't 100% comfortable holding hands with each other and things like that. But that began to clear because, you know, they realised that they just need to have the same level of respect for each other. You know, teams were made up of boys and girls. And, you know, if we had a, a female who was a great goal attack, you know, you would find that the centre, who was a boy, would always pass to her. After a few days, he would be like, I know that she's a good netball player. She's, she's somebody who is going to get this goal as opposed to, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to pass it to her because she's a girl and, you know, I might just pass it to my boyfriend. Um, it was essential to have everybody involved. You know, we didn't want to isolate anybody. And that's got to be really important, especially in, in cultures like that and in especially some of those smaller villages where there there are issues with gender inequality, aren't there? And there are still difficulties between men and women that are, are quite profound in some ways. And so actually teaching them as youngsters to sort of have that sort of equality, that's got to be giving them really good uh, sort of standing, really, for as they get older. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there are there are definitely signs of um, inequality with men and women. Um, you know, a lot of the when we were having um, kind of sexual education classes with the children and you know asking them, you know, we would just start a session with what's the difference between a man and a woman, you know, and the children would say, well, men are strong, mm-hmm. you know, and then you know, we, we we might say, well, do you not think girls are strong? And they'd say, no. I mean, it's a, it's a a huge job, of course, to kind of redirect any kind of belief on things like that but when we were talking to the girls about menstruation for example we would have the boys there as well because girls that would say oh you know sometimes I get teased when I'm you know if I have a stain on my dress the boys will tease me I I think that's because they just don't understand what it's about the children have a very good scientific understanding of what happens but nobody has ever spoken to them about you know how do you feel are you worried are you embarrassed do you feel unwell you know you know there's that kind of conversation has never been opened and the more that the boys are around those conversations i think the more that they will just realize that it's not a big deal half of the people on the planet have this issue it's nothing to to tease people about and it also gives the girls i think a lot more confidence to realize that it's not something that they have to hide away from or be ashamed about it, again, it just reminds us how lucky we are over on this side of the world because I'm sure that I'm guessing they don't have access to sanitary products either and so they just sort of have to deal with whatever's available. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the girls ha- um, were using um, reusable sanitary towels that had come from other donations. Um, part of the problem with the ones that they had was that, you know, they were in that kind of aeroplane shape like a lot of the sanitary towels are that, with, that are with wings. And if they are going to be washing them and hanging them up in the sun to dry, there is a taboo around hanging up something that is very obviously a sanitary towel. So, you know, it would, it would make the fathers a bit uncomfortable or the, the sons a bit uncomfortable or, you know, people walking past the house would think, oh, my gosh, this is so embarrassing. So, you know, they're forced to dry them inside, which means then, you know, the sanitary towels aren't really drying properly. They're then using them again, not fully dry. This is obviously leading to, you know, an increase in bacterial infections and things like that so one of the girls that we had with us was a girl called Tora who is um, a big part of a charity in Leeds called Freedom for Girls she does a phenomenal job already supplying reusable sanitary towels to some schools in Kenya Um, and the best part about her version of this reusable sanitary towel is that the insert is actually just square so it means that the children can wash them they can hang them up on the washing line outside they just look like handkerchiefs You know, there's no kind of, of course, we should be trying to encourage people to be fine with all of them. But for now, um, that would be a much more successful way of of these children using them. So that's something that we're really going to try and champion and, and send more out of. Now, I'm, I'm intrigued uh, by a number of the things you're involved with, and we're not going to have a huge amount of time to talk about all of them, but I know you're also involved in the Trussell Trust, which is to do with um, food banks. You've got the Helen Bamber Foundation that you're also supporting and the human rights charity. What is it? that drives you, Anna Cottle, to want to get involved in these things? Uh, oh, boredom. I've no idea. No, no, that's, no I'm kidding. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a very privileged human being in, compar- in, 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 in comparison to a lot of people on the planet. You know, I've, I've had lots of opportunities in life um, and I feel quite strongly about this concept of period poverty. Um, I always have done. I think the idea that planet are going to be slightly on the back foot simply because of um, their gender is absolutely ludicrous and you know it kind of started off with a friend casually saying over lunch oh did you know it was national menstruation day or something in a few weeks time and bizarrely for some reason I thought in my head I'm going to see how many cells and tampons I can collect between now and then for somebody whoever needs it I collected donations from friends and family that I 
hounded beyond belief. Um, and they donated to me enough sanitary towels and tampons to kick out one woman for 16 years. Wow. About two and a half weeks. Absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. So I ended up giving most of it to the Hackney Food Bank, which is um, the, the, the closest food bank to where I live in London, um, because I don't think there is enough thought around um, the fact that if people are forced to go to a food bank, then they, of course, will not be able to afford any kind of sanitary wear. You know, if you are so poor, you can't afford food for your belly, then, of course, you're not going to be able to afford sanitary, sanitary items as well. So I think something that's kind of come to my head recently is that, you know, people who are getting any kind of benefit for having children, so child benefits, they are going to be receiving the same amount for whether they have a boy or a girl. So if you have, you know, a teenage son who is 14, you might get given... You know, I, I have no idea of this, but you might get given 50 quid. If you have a 14-year-old daughter, you're going to get given 50 quid as well. Now, the daughter will be costing more because she needs to have this monthly support of sanitary towels or tampons. And, you know, the people that go to the food bank do need support in this area as well. So I gave a big chunk of it to the Hackney Food Bank, um, and they will give them out with their food parcels, which is fantastic. And I... Again, somehow came across the Helen Bambi Foundation, which is a phenomenally wonderful foundation um, who support women and men who are coming into this country who have been through um, horrendous, um, you know, torture um, and have gone through all sorts of traumatic things. And these people have gone through such mental trauma that, you know, they need a lot more support than just being pushed into normal society. So the Helen Bambi Foundation support these people on an individual basis you know they will assess them to work out what level of support they need and also what type of support they need so it might be physical therapy it might be art therapy it might be music therapy but they have a mummy and baby group on a monday um so i kind of gave the rest of it to them because i thought you know a lot of these women who have got small children or who are pregnant um will need things like that and i ended up working with them um i ended up supporting on their events that they have an annual uh, fundraising event uh, called the conversation which is actually coming up on the 27th of november their president is the lovely emma thompson and you know what she is an incredibly active president you know I, I i always kind of compare her to ellen brockovich because you know she knows the name of every single client they have she knows about their children she knows their circumstances you know she's not one of these celebrities who you know just put their name on things and sign papers and make things look great you know she's phenomenally active um, and involved which is another reason why i i feel so strongly that that charity is a super duper good thing i i know there's lots of people who'll be listening who'll be thinking we'd like to do something to help but that all seems quite big and we're not sure that we can actually do that much. What sort of advice would you give to someone who sat at home thinking, well, I really want to help someone in some way, but I don't know how. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I completely understand that sometimes the world can be quite overwhelming um, with um, people reaching out with needs. You know, I have people who I've met that have said, you know, I'm conflicted whether I should be helping the, the plight of refugees or you know, homeless people or young children. You know, I, I understand that it can be quite overwhelming, but everybody does have something that they, they feel quite strongly about, be it children or animals. I think you just need to pick one. Um, you know, and, and do something as big and small as you are able. You know, this is never meant to be something that puts you out, but it is something that I promise you'll feel really good about if you do. Um, and it can be, you know, something as small as giving a few quid to a charity every month or, you know, doing a bake sale and raising some money. And I, I know that there was an old quote about think globally, act locally, which was something that I was I was 
thought about when I was growing up. And your local doesn't have to be your community. You know, I feel like my my local is now Uganda. I feel very strongly that that's the one thing that I'm going to try and keep as close to me as possible and, and to try and continue working with. So I think you, you just need to pick one thing that you know I really care about this um, and do, like I said, as little or as much as you can. Ah!